Well, today we're going to look at uh, chapter 6 and 7. And actually, the, uh, the focus of what we'll be looking at will be chapter 6 and 7 and even creep into a little bit of chapter 8. We're looking at the life of Stephen this morning as we continue in our series, uh, Becoming the Church, Stories of the First Jesus People. I, I want to let you know I'm excited about the next uh, three Sundays in particular because we're going to stay in Acts right on through Resurrection Sunday on Easter, so I'm excited about that. So you'll want to be reading ahead because we'll look at all of chapter 8 and then chapter 9, and we'll be in chapter 9 on Easter Sunday, so that's going to be pretty exciting. And I think you'll find that there's a, a lot there in chapter 8 and chapter 9 which has everything to do with the death of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of His resurrection. We have a lot to look at today, and you might say, well, why are you taking all that on? And, and people often prompt me, well, just slow down and take smaller pieces. But there is kind of a scope to, to what's going on. And here is kind of a complete presentation, a complete picture of Stephen. And, and so even though I can't, in the time we have this morning, dissect or, or look as closely as I might like and we might like at what chapter 7 in particular and Stephen's message has to teach us, we do want to see the life of Stephen. And uh, we'll look back a little bit at what we looked at last week, the first seven verses of chapter 6, but I would like us to begin with verse 8, and we'll read through verse 15. Last week we saw how Stephen, as we saw a picture of the, of the, well we call it the church, but they had no building, uh, they had no steeple. The first Jesus people, as we look kind of at the interior life of the church, we see this. We saw the need. Uh, there was a concern that the Greek-speaking Jews, in particular their widows, were being neglected in the distribution of help, particularly food. And so the apostles said, pick seven men qualified by their being filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And among those seven that were chosen, and, and you know, they didn't go to a consulting firm, they didn't seek outside help. Uh, they found seven, and among them was one, Stephen. And so he, along with the other six, assumed the management and the distribution of that need. And now we pick it up with verse 8. And Stephen here will see not just the interior life of the church, but we'll see Stephen in his external work for Christ in the sense of beyond the Jesus people, beyond the followers of Jesus, his work among Jews who did not believe or had not yet accepted Jesus Christ, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. And the people 
there refers to the general populace. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, which would be the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw him, saw his face like the face of an angel. And then the priest asks him if these things are true. And starting in chapter 7, verse 2, all the way through verse 50, Stephen speaks to this council, the Sanhedrin, the priest, and his priestly associates, which we've met before, talked about, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees that make up the balance of the ruling council of the land. They're not an independent nation. They're a client state under imperial Rome. And in that sense, they're occupied. But when it comes to Jewish affairs, this is the highest ruling council in the land. Like the Supreme Court. And Stephen takes them throughout chapter 7 in a journey that really picks up after Genesis and <laughs> chapters 3 through 11, after the creation, the fall, the social catastrophe, the cosmic <laughs> destruction of of the earth and the new start and what God does he begins with Abraham and Stephen takes us from Abraham down into the present that is the present in which he's speaking to the council and then in they are so incensed by what he has to say they drag him I mean it's it really is like a like a lynching I mean they're just overwhelmed with uh, emotion and, the, and what they consider bl blasphemous acts. They don't say, yes, this is blasphemy, but their actions say, this is blasphemy. They are uncontrollably outraged by Stephen. They drag him out, they stone him, and there's a man there who was a member of the Freedmen's Synagogue, Paul, but not yet called Paul, Saul. 
and many lay their coats at his feet, and he is witness to Stephen and what he finally says. And then it is Saul in chapter 8, that's why I wanted us to see within our focus here the first four verses of chapter 8. It is Paul who is authorized by this council to persecute Christians. And it explains and portrays his persecution of Christians, dragging them out of their homes and arresting them. But this persecution that actually is launched with Stephen becomes a catalyst to the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Samaria and Judea and then, of course, outermost parts. But it is, as we're told, even in those first four verses, particularly in verse 4 of chapter 8, that those who were scattered because of the persecution went witnessing and we'll see that they go into, wit, into Samaria and Judea. The picture that we have of Stephen is really a picture of a man who is Christ-like. And the first thing that we learn is that, and if you can put that slide up for me, you know, one thing that is is across the pages of the New Testament, and we see even here, this is not working, uh, is that those who follow Jesus Christ become like Jesus. And that's God's purpose for our lives. And that's made very plain in the New Testament. God wants you to become like Jesus. And that begins in our journey of faith, but God will complete that work He'll consummate it. And at the resurrection, we're told that our lowly, that is, our, our weak and imperfect human existence will be totally transformed and we will become like Jesus Christ in that the Holy Spirit will be the very constitution of our being. And Paul talks about that at length in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 35, and just read to the end of the chapter. It's, it's quite rich. But he also mentions it, for example, in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Just to mention specifically what I was talking about. But we are to become Christ-like. And here in Acts, we see Jesus' people become Christ-like by following Jesus. And there is no more characteristic example than Stephen. And there are three, we, three ways and a fourth that show us how Stephen, among others, followed Jesus. And these are the ways of following Jesus that are familiar to us. And so this really reinforces the kinds of things that we're all already trying to do each and every day of our lives. And the first thing we see in Jesus' life is that, in, in Stephen's life, is that Jesus' people are servant-hearted. Servant-hearted. Back in the first part of chapter 6, we saw that 
there was a challenge to the to the early distribution of food, that it be done in an equitable manner. And so, if we go back very quickly and look at chapter 6, we see that the need is described as the daily serving of food, verse 1. The waiting on tables, verse 2. And in verse 3, someone to take on the need, that is, the responsibility, the task, or the duty. This is not an I'm somebody job on the surface of it. It's just not. It's not an I'm somebody job. But somebody has to do it because it is a real need. And as we alluded last week, it has the potential to be destructive if it's not addressed. That's why it's called a need. But what is interesting, even though it's not a I'm somebody kind of a job, Stephen was willing. And his willingness is not a special personality trait, I don't think. Now, I have no insight. I mean, I, I have the same information that you have. And when we read this, there's no way to know what was going on inside of Stephen's heart. Maybe he desired to do this. Maybe he longed to do this. You know, to wait on tables. To serve people. But there's nothing here that suggests it was a a special personality trait. You know, like he was, he was just born to, to serve others. What is striking is that Stephen, like the other six, are spirit-filled. Now that's very important. Because when they look for someone to do this task, they looked for someone who was Spirit-filled. Now to be filled with the Spirit, and, and by the way, it is taught in the New Testament, and we'll see it taught as we have already in Acts, but we'll see it also taught again. That when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, when a person says, he is Lord. That person is gifted with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And we, we talked about that at length in chapter 2 of Acts. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message again because it was chock full of foundational information as to how we should fathom who the Holy Spirit is. But when Jesus was raised when he was exalted, when he stood at the right hand of God, glorified in the glory of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit was given to him to fulfill. This is even stated in Acts chapter 2. And the Spirit was poured out upon his people, as we see in Acts chapter 2. So the Holy Spirit becomes a fulfillment of what Jesus told his disciples that he would never leave them, 
that they would not be bereft. And look at John chapters 14, 15, and 16. We looked at a number of the passages, and there, the Spirit is called a paraclete, a, a counselor, an aid, an advisor. And Jesus said, I'm going to send another paraclete, implying that I have been in this role in your lives, and I'm going to send the Spirit to you. And he's going to take up that job. So I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to be with you. And it's very much better. And so on. I can't go off and teach all of this. but So right here, when we're told that in meeting this really pragmatic, practical, everyday needs. Someone's got to do it, but it is an important responsibility. They need wisdom. They need judgment. They need discretion. But they need to be selfless. And where does the power for that come? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from Jesus, the presence of Jesus. One thing Jesus said, and by the way, the best leaders, even in serving, are first good followers. And among God's people, leaders are distinguished by following Jesus. In, in, and you can find this in all of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Mark chapter 10, you'll find in verses 42 through 45 what I want us to focus our attention uh, upon for a moment. Jesus said, I, will not, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Jesus said that. That was the punchline. That was the punchline to what was going on when he uttered that remarkable statement. The disciples were arguing over who is greatest among them. Listen to what Jesus says. And he calls his disciples to himself. Now, the mark of a disciple is to become like the Master. And he calls his disciples to, them, to, to himself, and he told them, and I quote, You know that those who are recognized as rulers or leaders among the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. Your servant, whoever wishes to become great among you, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. That began with Jesus. And who was doing the service before Stephen and the other six? Who was doing that? Who was doing the service when the question of equitability in distribution arose? The apostles were doing that. 
those who were appointed by Jesus himself, those who were the disciples, they were doing that. There was no job too small for them in Jesus Christ. There is no menial task in the Lord. In fact, I think the best leaders are those who get down and show us all how to do whatever it takes to live for Jesus Christ. And so when they are going to confer some of this responsibility onto these others, they're looking for people like-hearted, like-minded. Think about it. In Philippians chapter 2, when Paul is writing to this church he loves so much and is concerned about, he says, starts off by saying, be of one mind, one heart, let's all, let's be of one spirit. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus, the Lord of glory, who takes on the form of a man. And the whole point of that, who became obedient to death, in other words, a ransom for many, he who did not come to be served, but to serve. I mean, we have, in a, in a sense, an expansion on what Jesus said, as we read in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And what is the point of Paul's pointing to Jesus Christ, who being equal with God, did not think that equality something to to boast in or to hold over others. He became a servant. He became a man just like you and me. And the whole point of that in Paul is that we should not be caught up in just our own interests, but as he says in verse 2 and 3, consider as more important the interests of others. I think it's important that Jesus recognized the reality of wishing to become great among others. That is a motive in all of our hearts. I, I remember when I became an intern at First Baptist Church, they had at one time 30 interns, 3,500 people. I mean, it was, I was so thrilled to be accepted to this internship. I felt the call of God on my life. It was sincere from top to bottom, from side to side, head to toe. But I'll tell you, I really wanted to get that intern badge. I wanted to wear that on Sundays. It was like a validation of God's call on my life. There's always that kind of stuff, you know, in competition. In fact, if Jesus is accepted as, as Lord of our lives, it's not like, boom, you're perfect. It's a slog, isn't it? It is a slog. It's like walking in two feet of mud sometimes because we are just so human. And the question then becomes, just as we see it even here, 
in that they looked for spirit-filled men because they looked for those people who were sensitive and responsive to the leading of Jesus Christ. It's just as plain as that. Who wins back in Mark chapter 10 among the disciples? Well, it becomes a question of who you're going to follow. Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? Then we're not going to act like the Gentiles. The culture, the business world is not going to dictate the way we do business. It's a different order of affairs if you're following me. It shall not be so among you. Right now, you're arguing about who is greatest among us. You know, among you, the disciples. That shall not be. If you want to be a leader, then you become a servant of all. Not just the exceptional, not just the apostles that you happen to like to hang with more. And really, it does come down. Think about this in in the scope of a daily life. The scope of your day. How about Monday? Monday's a bad day. So that would be a good day to think about. What if during the day, it became apparent to you that you were at a crossroads? Am I going to follow Jesus in the way I think about this person? Or am I going to follow the course of my life, which was so comfortable and standard and worldly, and basically the default position of every person who's born on this earth? Am I going to follow that way? because I can find lots of encouragement, lots of people who will side with me, people who will say, oh, that's perfectly normal. That's the battle. And it it isn't just your battle, it's my battle too. You never outgrow it. But in the process, you do become more like Jesus. Your response time is quicker. I mean, when you dial 911 to the Lord, boom, He's there after a while. I mean, in the sense that... uh, That didn't come out right at all. That did not come out right at all. (laughs) That did not come out right at all. The Lord is always there, but as you grow in Christ, your response time is better. <laughs> At least you're with me. If you hadn't picked that up, we would be in trouble. Hey, I got a lot. Oh my goodness. This is second point. Jesus people are spirit-filled. You know, to call Stephen servant-hearted is not to deny conflicting motives, is what I'm trying to say. He may have wrestled with wishing to become great, even though Jesus set the example and the apostles did this same service. The apostles! So no one's setting an example of, hey, this job's better than that job. There are no elite in my... I think this is biblical. There are just no elite within the body of of Jesus Christ within the church. It's just not that way. There are no gurus. Jesus is the elite one. He, if there is a guru, it is him, if you know what I'm saying. 
But they are told to choose spirit-filled people, which points to a detectable pattern. What does spirit-filled look like? Think about this for a moment. Choose spirit-filled people. Do you think Stephen and these others were going around, whoa, praise Jesus, thank you, Lord. We are spirit-filled. You wouldn't even, you would probably say that person is not spirit-filled. They're drawing attention to themselves. Hey, look at how holy I am. It's almost like they're overdoing it. What does spirit-filled look like? This is a valid question. Obviously, there was a detectable pattern. They could say, find spirit-filled people. What does spirit-filled look like? The simple answer is, it looks like Jesus. It smells like Jesus. It feels like Jesus. I'm serious. I can tell the difference. Don't you think you could? You know enough about Jesus. Can you tell when someone's acting like Jesus? You you sure can. There are some people, they've, they've got all the church credentials, but they don't smell like Jesus to me at all. They have the wrong attitude, the wrong spirit. Their outlook is condemning and judgmental and ugly. And I'm just saying, man, that's, something's not right here. They're so critical. They never see things. There's no joy. There's no love. There's no self-control. They're gossipy. They seem to get some some thrill out of bringing someone down, of talking about stuff they don't know firsthand. And you know what a Jesus person will do? They won't act in kind. They bear it okay. It hurts inside but that doesn't mean I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. You know, we're naturally filled with selfish wishes and desires, just like wanting to be greatest among us. But Jesus comes along, and it makes a difference. In more than one place, and I'm still answering the question, what does spirit-filled look like? In more than one place in Paul's letters, the spirit and flesh are spoken about. The flesh in Paul's writings, in his letters, features... In other words, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not talking about this stuff so much. He's talking about our self-sufficiency and self-interests and desires. You should write that down. Flesh, colon... Self-sufficiency, self-interests and desires. Selfish interests and desires. But when Paul talks about the Spirit, almost entirely he talks about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. 
In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 14, you can write those down. Look them. The Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Jesus, and this makes sense with what we've been saying in Acts. Who was promised when Jesus was raised, exalted to the right hand of God, and glorified, as it says in chapter 2 of Acts, verses 1 through 41. The Spirit, as we saw in John chapters 14, 15, 16, and there it's just so plain, the Spirit glorifies Jesus. Why would the Holy Spirit The Spirit of God glorified Jesus because He's been raised from the dead, exalted, and raised to the right hand of the Father. He stands beside Jesus. Jesus stands beside God who is glorified. And God's plan for His entire creation. Read Ephesians chapter 1. Read those first 13 verses, particularly 3 through 13. And in in particular, verse 9 and 10. Jesus is the heart of God's plan for all of us. So when the Spirit is poured out and wants to promote Jesus, He's going to glorify Jesus. What does it mean to glorify Jesus? Put a halo around His head? No. It means to elevate His reputation, to exalt and honor who He really is. As we said in previous passages, it's so easy to see that the Spirit is prominent where Jesus Christ is preeminent. You want to see the Holy Spirit show up in your life? Elevate Jesus Christ in your heart and your mind. And that's the point Paul is making when he contrasts the flesh and the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of God poured out into your life. Jesus present in you, if you will. Who will promote and prompt Jesus. And reinforce and encourage. And where Jesus is prominent, He will empower you to do things that are Jesus-like. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans 8.14, All who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are children of God. Spirit-filled means that a person is under the influence and power of Jesus. Filling, filling means to be occupied, to be full, to be under the influence. So the interests of Jesus is full in you. His will, Jesus' will, is full in you. His desires, you know, Jesus' heart is full in you. Not me first. And that's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is me first. I'm going to work this out. I'm going to pursue my goals, my objectives. I'm going to do what's going to promote me. And I'll check in with you, Lord, when I get a chance or when I need you. I understand this. Why am I so fluent in this? Because it's true to my life. It's true to my experience, and I know it's true to yours. Just because you get a title or you're called pastor doesn't change everything. I wish that it did. But it doesn't. The battle continues. How are you filled with the Spirit? 
Paul wrote about being filled or spirit-filled in a more how-to way. I'm going to give you three passages. You should reflect on them. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Paul talks about setting our minds on the things of the Spirit and not setting our minds on the things of the flesh. That's very practical. Do you mean that Paul is talking about the same thing? That's this filling with the Spirit? Part, filling, you, can, you can ask the Lord to fill me. I think that's very good to do. But coordinated with that is the idea of putting your mind on those things. It is amazing. We've, we sang the Revelation song. Oh, that's such a favorite of mine. And I was in a pretty good place in worship, but boy, when that started, it was amazing. Just, I don't know, there was just an awe in me of the Lord, and the words were working on my mind, and my disposition was just taken to another level. Do you know what I'm talking about? Think, these things have power in our lives. When we look at junk, our hearts and our minds are going to be filled with junk. When you hang with junky people, your hearts and minds are going to be filled with junk. And when you walk with junky people, they're going to take you junky places. Unless you're stronger. And there's nothing in our natural bent, our humanness, to make us stronger. Except Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. You should read all of the first chapter of Romans 8 because it's all about the Spirit in the flesh and then it, the crescendo is, is that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we, we talk to God as though He's our daddy. We say, Abba. Paul tells us that. Here's another thing Paul talks about. He talks about in Galatians 5.16 about walking or following the Holy Spirit. Well, walking is a very practical thing to do, especially back in those times. Now, of course, we have all kinds of modes of transportation. But walking, you know, if you're going to walk with your friend, you're going to go where your friend leads you unless you're the stronger personality. Well, in the very same way, the Jews understood the influence of people in our lives, and Paul applies that to the Spirit. He says, walk after, follow. That's what Jesus called his disciples to do, isn't it? And now the Spirit, we're told, is to lead us in the same way, because that Spirit is not off on his own thing. He's not a maverick. He promotes Jesus Christ. So set your mind on, walk after. In other words, what is the Spirit? Influential. Here's another way in which he talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. He says, be filled. Be, there's that word, full. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But before that, he says, don't be under the influence of alcohol. We didn't put it like that. He says, don't be drunk with wine. In fact, if you are drunk with wine or something, some other spirit, you may get pulled over and you may get slapped with a 
driving under the influence. But Paul says, be filled with God's Spirit, which puts you under His influence. So this whole Spirit-filled thing is nothing mysterious. It's about God having place in our life. But what is mysterious is what God will do when you give Him His place, the rightful place, first place, full place, the whole place in your life. And then wonders and signs and all that other stuff, that's up to Him to do. But when He has you to do it in, He'll start to do things you never thought would would be possible for you. Just like I never thought those things would be possible for me. And I can't wait day by day to see what God is going to do. Look at the descriptions of... Well, you see the verses up there. Read those verses. <laughs> Jesus' people are Scripture-sided. Oh, man. Stephen, this is the longest message in Acts. This is a, a pivotal event, and I've touched on a little of that. The charge of blasphemy is leveled against Stephen. Very quickly, look at, at verse 11 of chapter 6. And what does it say? He is uttering blasphemies against the law and against God. That's two charges. Those are the only two charges. You don't need any more charges than those two charges. Now what he goes on... We're told in verse 13 and verse 14, we give, we're, we're given an elaboration of those two charges. Whenever it says against God, well, as we can see, it's the holy place. Where does God dwell? He dwells in His temple. And so the charge against God is the charge against the temple, the holy place, which Stephen's a good witness to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, destroy this temple. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy it. But if you destroy, if this temple is destroyed, I'll raise it again in three days. And he was talking about himself. Because Jesus is the new holy place, if you will. But now they've got that twisted. And even here now, just like Stephen, going back to Jesus, Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. So this is... One charge is about the temple, and that's a grave, grievous charge against God, blasphemy against God. And the other is Moses, or the law, because Moses gave the law, or is the giver of the law. He's (laughs) synonymous with the law. And what Stephen will do throughout this chapter is instead of just strictly answering the charges, he will as it were, start at the beginning and give a history of the Israelite people. And particularly, what he'll show is summarized in uh, verses 51 through 53 and 52, uh, pardon me, in 48 through 53. 
In verses 48 through 51, he takes on the issue of the temple, the holy place. And in 51 through 53, he takes on the law and Moses. Well, I, I just had so much beautiful stuff to share with you about the Scripture. But Stephen is he's Scripture-sided. And I just want to leave you with that thought. Don't neglect God's Word. It is a beautiful, powerful thing. If you're just reading it like getting ready for a trivial pursuit or something, or playing Jeopardy, but let it, let it speak to you. Let it touch your heart. And then powerfully, Stephen, just like Jesus' people, is shown to be Christ-like. Stephen says, I see open heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In verse 59, we're told that Stephen said, receive my spirit. And then Stephen prayed, do not hold against them what they do, because they don't understand. And these, both these expressions were used by Jesus Himself. And there is a picture here of a man, even though it's such a brief one, who uh, gave his life completely to Jesus Christ. I hope you've uh, sensed the, the deep personal interest that I have in what I was sharing today because we're on this walk with Jesus together. And, and it, it always comes back to something really fundamental. Am I going to let Jesus be the Lord of my life? And, and am I going to let that Lordship not just be titular or a title, am I going to let it have effective power? So when I'm upset with with something my wife says, boy, I immediately start to, you know, she's the only one that really gets to me. <laughs> Positively and negatively. But oftentimes I, I, I feel the pinch of the Lord, you know? And it becomes an issue of who's going to be greatest. That's a real relevant example for me. And sometimes the lag time, you know, I, I got to... It takes a little while for me to really let the Lord take over. And sometimes I even find I want to find a face-saving way <laughs> to kind of get back. Uh, it's all part of growing in Christ, but let's keep after it, shall we? Each and every day. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for us. And after uh, I close, if you, as others are leaving, would like to come forward for prayer, to pray with me or one of the elders or pastors. Pray for yourself. Pray for someone else. Pray for whatever God has prompted you or put on your heart. We invite you to come. Well, Lord, we do love you. We want to follow you faithfully. We want to be discernibly uh, 
perceived as devoted to you. Inspire us, Lord. Encourage our hearts. Give us the big picture. Remind us we know your Spirit prompts us constantly. And may we see some victories today, tomorrow, and throughout this week as we seek to walk with you. We pray all of this in your matchless name. And in your name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.